The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a traditional Catholic priest and member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for being here. Very welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'd I'd ask everyone to pray for a a good soul. Hank Raska. Hank, uh, well-known in Catholic, traditional Catholic media had uh, surgery recently, so uh, I ask you to pray for his speedy and full recovery. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Father, we have a a few things to get into tonight, but uh, I guess first I'd like to to start off with uh, some current events. You know, we continue to see the the statue-toppling pandemic uh, sweeping the nation. It's been in, in the news a lot still. What what do you make of this uh, this continued um, these continued events, Father? Do you think that, that we see any kind of revolution taking place in the United mm-hmm. States today because of all of this? Well, we rightly associate toppling statues with revolution. This is what revolutionaries do. You know, when they supposedly overthrew communism, they would topple statues of Lenin and Stalin. Uh, when the Stalinists and Leninists uh, are behind the revolution, they topple the statues of those who opposed them, right? Stand against them. So we, we have to see uh, a, a very clear-cut um, hallmark of revolution in the toppling of these statues, that those who are doing this are not just uh, you know having sport. They are actually revolutionaries. They want to overthrow the United States of America, its institutions. Um, now, there's been a lot of press in that, and uh, President uh, Trump has actually deployed uh, those to protect the statues and uh, realizing this is part of American America's heritage, her history, and he's put some pretty stiff fines for those who would attack them and destroy them. But for those of us who have lived long enough, um, that is, who've lived through Vatican II and its aftermath, we recognize the smashing of the statues because we saw that happening. We saw the toppling of those statues, the smashing of these statues, <clears throat> happening after Vatican II, when the statues were being hauled out of the churches, smashed and thrown in pieces, chunks of plaster in the uh, in the dumpsters, right? Uh, we, we saw what it was when the Catholic people were, were trying to keep track of finding out what their priests' intentions were so they could rescue the statues, <clears throat> buy them back, uh, pull them out of the dumpster, rep- repair them, you know. Uh, but it was the, uh, the same thing, uh, toppling and smashing the statues. In this case, the statues of our Lord, of Our Lady, of the Saints, and this smashing of statues was being done by the Novus Ordo, the New Order clergy, the modernist clergy who are renovating their churches at the command of their bishops, the Novus Ordo bishops, who had just come back from Vatican II, 
So they knew what Vatican II was all about. <clears throat> and this is the program they instituted. Anybody over 60 years old would probably remember that now. Um, 60, maybe 70. Approaching 70 would remember exactly this. The statues we have here in Immaculate Conception Church uh, were statues that were saved. Uh, in some cases, saved from being smashed to bits by Novus Ordo clergy because there were Catholic faithful who were, were there to intervene to save them from being smashed. The communion rail we have in our church now was going to be smashed to bits. It's, it's Carrera marble. It was slated to be smashed to bits by the priest who was in charge here at the time. But a layman, a uh, police officer, um, intervened. He was the head of their parish council here, and he told the priest, if you break that up, if you destroy that, I will never come back. And so the priest didn't destroy it. He had it buried. In fact, the the floor of the, uh, the undercroft or the basement of the church was red clay when we arrived here. It was all red clay. But protruding from the, from the surface of the clay were little bits of marble here and there, white marble that were very much in contrast with the red clay. It looked almost like dinosaur bones, you know, out on a desert floor. And when we uncovered, when we dug, we found that those were pieces of the communion rail, the priest had buried in the basement. And so we actually had to excavate them out of there. And we hired a professional stonemason to come, good man, worked very hard at this, to uh, put all of the pieces of the communion rail back together again. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of pieces here, some of them quite small, but marble doesn't stretch. And so it had to be exact. He had to piece it all together. None of the pieces were marked or anything like that. So he had to piece it all together. Did a great job. One of our parishioners worked with him, remarked at how exact he was, you know, in what he did. So painstaking what he did to recreate, as it were, that... Uh, that communion rail. So we're very grateful for that. But see, this is the work of revolutionaries. This is what revolutionaries do. So those who claim that Vatican II is not a revolution are ignoring reality. Vatican II was a revolution. <clears throat> Every aspect of Vatican II, from beginning to end, from ideology right through to practice to the smashing of the statues, was a revolution. And that revolution is still going on today. And Francis is the basically the poster child of the, for that revolution. He is the one, he is the point man to make that revolution come to uh, its necessary end, uh, which is the complete destruction of the traditional Catholic faith and uh, the exaltation of the religion of man. Or as uh, Ettore Tedeschi says, uh, you know, uh, Gnostic environmentalism, the new religion. We know that the true Catholic faith and religion cannot be destroyed, though. So we know that in the end, uh, Jorge Bergoglio and his uh, minions uh, will fail. But there are many souls who are going to suffer eternal consequences um, from their efforts. So we have to continue uh, practicing the traditional Catholic faith, being faithful to the traditional Catholic uh, Church ourselves, and realize that these intruders, these modernist intruders, uh, are not are not doing the work of God here. Mm -hmm. Quite the contrary. Okay. 
So yes, it, uh, what we see happening before our very eyes now is an attempted revolution. And uh, what we saw happening in the aftermath of Vatican II in the church was actually the worst part of the revolution. That's a spiritual overthrow, a spiritual revolution yeah. headed by the modernists and their leader was two horns and a pointy tail. <laughs> well, Father, I think that leads nicely into uh, the next topic I wanted to get into. This is a great question we had from a, a viewer who asks about universal salvation, if you could discuss this. She says that uh, she believes that universal salvation has hijacked the church, and uh, she also believes this is why many priests and, and bishops have lost the faith due to this universal salvation theology. Uh, so, Father, could you comment on this universal salvation theology? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I take what she means by that, or who, it, it, it's gentleman, I, I don't know, that everyone is going to be saved, ultimately, right? And um, there was actually a uh, father of the church, Origen, who actually believed that in the end, all of creation would return to God. And uh, that is the why, that is the reason they say that he was never named a saint, because he taught that error. Um, and um, at the time, I mean, it, it was still a theological position. You know, we know it was it's an error against the faith. The fact is, though, that it is, it is, it is a denial of our Lord's words in the gospel. Our Lord talks about the the lasting, the permanent consequences of condemnation to hell. Uh, our Lord is very, very clear about that. When he talks about hell about, oh, 64 times or so in the Gospels, he's very clear about this being a permanent state of punishment. Uh, there is no relief from it, right? There's no end to it. It's not as though people serve their time and uh, everybody winds up going to hell. Uh, quite the contrary. Um, now, the the error has been re revised, in a sense, in our own modern times by the modernists. Francis has helped to weigh in, weigh in uh, expressing the idea that the blessed, the faithful ones become blessed, and the bad people just uh, are annihilated. They just disappear. They're gone. Poof. And of course, this is another error unto itself. But again, an error that is contrary to the defined teaching of the Catholic Church about the eternity of the punishment of hell. So there is no such thing as universal salvation. That is a, a heresy. Uh, it is a denial of a defined doctrine of the Roman Catholic faith. Um, and um, it is, as I think your writer says, the source of a lot of uh, other error in the church, right? That uh, the the, the, um, the modernists go from that error to many others too, right? So yeah. it's it's a kind of a feel good thing that everybody's going to be saved. Um, so um, the consequences of living a good life for a bad life are are minimized. It's just a matter of time before well, we're all in heaven anyway, and that is a, a nice thought for those who reject our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross um, and his teaching in the gospel. Our Lord came to save us from sin. The wages of sin is death, and that death 
is the death of the body, but the death of the soul. And the death of the soul condemns one to hell, and that is forever. <clears throat> there's no escape, there's no end to that punishment, and there is no universal salvation. It's a myth, okay. a very dangerous myth. All right, uh, we've got another email here. Father, this uh, should be interesting. If you're asked about the term ethnic Gnosticism, if you are familiar with that term, Father. Um, not terribly. What do they tell you? I, in other words, I, I would interpret it in my own way, according to my understanding of ethnicity and uh, Gnosticism. But maybe they give you an explanation as what they mean by it? Yeah, just a bit. They say that uh, ethnic Gnosticism is a term crafted by a Dr. Vadi Bacham. B-A-U-C-H-A-M, to explain the phenomenon of people believing that somehow because of one's ethnicity that one is able to know when something or someone is racist. Uh, so they, uh, they talk about the, uh, this Dr. Basham, they say they, uh, that uh, they shed light on the way this ideology is undermining the gospel and compromising genuine Christian relationships in the church today. They say, in recent years, we have a growing concern about social justice. Uh, what is meant by that phrase, however, varies widely among those who use and promote it. Uh, what is often missing uh, coming from Christian leaders is a clear understanding of biblical justice. And uh, so they talk about uh, this idea of, of justice, basically, in regards to uh, a lot of the problems that we see in America today and just how that um, seems so often to come back to this ethnic Gnosticism. Well, if I, if I understand all of that correctly, going from one point to another, that uh, ethnic Gnosticism is supposed to be some sort of an, a, 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 an intuitive power to... Just sense whether someone else is a racist mm -hmm. or yeah. statements, just see racism where no one else does because right. they have this kind of uh, third eye that enables them to see racism where, where no one else can detect it. Right? Mm -hmm. um, well, I see why he, that he calls it Gnosticism. Okay, I was a little confused as to why he invoked Gnosticism for that. Some secret, some occult, some very personal... And um, as as you say, um, uh, intuitive knowledge. Uh, this this has no place in Christianity. It has no place in the teaching of the Catholic Church. Obviously, no place in the Gospel. Right? This idea that certain people, because of their ethnic backgrounds, I guess, so their racial backgrounds, they claim that they can almost sense Gnosticism in another person through a sixth sense, almost. And that's nothing but superstition, but it's also a prejudice. It gives free reins to their prejudices to uh, assign the vice of racism, because it is a vice, to anybody they feel like or feels is not giving them what they, the respect or the uh, whatever else, they, the advantage that they feel they, they deserve, right? And um, I gather that this is, if I understand correctly what is said there, that, that that's what they're getting at. Mm -hmm. It's like a, some kind of a, a free ticket <clears throat> to attack other people and to accuse other people of being unjust, at least in their thoughts or at least in their words and their expressions, um, where there's something so implicit or even non-existent, <coughs> right, that they can still assign the, the tag of, of Gnosticism. 
All that is is just playing the race card. Is I guess the expression they use in, in modern language these days is somebody's playing the race card. So they're losing uh, the argument, and so immediately they just slap that on the table, and it's it's uh, like the wild card stops all discussion, and uh, automatically uh, you lose. You know, no matter what it is, you lose, and they win because they play the race card. So that is totally contrary to the teaching of our Lord in the in the uh, sacred scripture. So totally contrary contrary to the teaching of Christ through His Church, the true Roman Catholic Church, and it is something that that has to be condemned as such. It's nothing but a a racist uh, tool, a tool of racism to attack others for racism. When actually the racist is the one who is using that tool to attack others. That's the real racist. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, well, I guess in that sense, racist uh, agnosticism, is, is that what he calls it? Ethnic agnosticism uh, truly is, an, it, it's an evil thing. Yeah. They're using it right now. The revolutionaries are using that right now to attack everything uh, that they want to destroy and everyone whom they want to destroy. That's anyone who stands in their way. They just accuse them of uh, being an ethnic Gnostic. It kind of reminds me of the use of the word Sadie the Contest these days, because there are certain uh, would-be traditional Catholic organizations that if they want to just destroy the credibility of anybody, they just say, oh, he's Sadie the Contest, right? And immediately, it's like playing, playing the race card. They say, oh, well, you know, nothing they say can ever be right. And um, they're Sadie the Contists, and, and there's nothing more to be said about them. They're just evil, 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 <laughs> and uh, must be shunned at all costs. Now, you know what I think about Sadie the I think I've made it very clear, right? <laughs> I think so. uh, the different species of Sadie the Contists and Sadie the Contism. Mm -hmm. But I, I see the playing of the Sadie the Contist uh, card as also very unjust. And basically a tool of those who are dogmatic themselves, but in a very, very um, non-Catholic way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why is that such an effective tactic, though, Father? You know, you, um, I, I think that the parallel with, with the state of econtism is, is perfect. But, um, you know, when talking about racism, you know, we've all seen it a thousand times over where someone is accused of, of being racist and it's like it, it, it always sticks. There's just a stigma with that person for the rest of their lives, whatever. If it's some public figure or something that, you know, they can never get another job, they can never be in the, in the public eye again. There's just this stigma. And they can never, ever prove themselves innocent. Yes. Uh, yes, it's right there. They're, Why uh, is that? They're accused, they're tried, they're condemned, they're executed, <laughs> and uh, they're non-persons from that moment on. You know, yes. just, just because somebody said that, accused them of it. Yeah. Uh, why is that so? Well, so the perversity of the human mind, heart, original sin, ultimately. Right? Yeah. The same with Sadie Vicantist. You, know, you can't have a discussion. Yeah. If, if somebody calls you a racist, they, you cannot have a discussion. No. <laughs> From there, that, that ends all rational yes. discussion, right? Yes. Because you are not even worthy of discussion yeah. or to, to uh, be included in the discussion. Nothing you say has any credibility whatsoever. And this is how the word Sede Vicantis is used among uh, so-called traditional Catholics. 
Because as soon as if you've accused someone of that, it destroys all credibility, and you have nothing more to say that is of any value or has any any uh, uh, truth value. You know, you are negated, and, and this is uh, utterly unjust. Um, because there is there are legitimate arguments about that. I mean, there are very serious issues involved there uh, that need to be need to be discussed. Uh, obviously, right? There's serious issues here. So, uh, in any case, um, it's, it's just a tool of, of those who are weak and have a weak position, uh, or are too lazy to actually have a serious discussion. And they just want to shut everything down and, um, declare themselves the winner just on the basis of, of, of one word, right? Which, uh, essentially, uh, you know, annihilates the credibility of their opponent. Okay, Father, it's sort of like you're you're having a boxing match, okay? And there's a boxing match going on. At one point, the the guy, the one who's losing, pulls out a a three fifty seven magnum and shoots the opponent, and says, "Well, I took care of that," and, and declares himself the winner and walks away. And uh, it's unjust, unfair, <laughs> it's criminal and even sinful, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Father, another email here, uh, changing gears a little bit. Uh, this viewer says uh, that there are many who claim to be traditional Catholic uh, who endorse the idea of Zionism. He says, I would think from everything I have read, including St. John Chrysostom, among many others, that the Church would condemn Zionism. It is an evil philosophy that has no problems with stealing the land of Palestine, has no problems with Hollywood, has no problems being a vampire on nations and international banking with usury. Father Jenkins, do you have any thoughts on this idea of Zionism? Well, Zionism can have a secular significance, and that's what this uh, writer is talking about. He's talking about secular significance, that it, that it has a just kind of a, a political anointing, uh, that it, it, it entitles uh, the Zionists to take what they want, you know, and uh, I guess it, it, there's, we see kind of a, a parallel between the Black Lives Matter people today, on the one hand, and Zionists on the other, who say, look, um, because I'm black, I'm entitled to reparations and everything else, reparations for things that my grandparents or great-grandparents suffered or even didn't. Maybe, maybe my family arrived later in the United States, but I'm still, I'm black, so I'm entitled to these reparations. Um, and uniquely so, so that, um, you know, throughout all the centuries of the world's existence and the, the human race's existence, there have been slaves, right? And the slaves have been all different nationalities, all different races. Uh, millions of slaves have been white slaves, enslaved in Africa, and the slave markets of Tunisia, the slave markets of the, the, the Barbary Coast, they had all the... the the Muslim slave trade was very uh, highly developed, and uh, many of our Catholic saints throughout history um, were victims of that slave trade. But never, ever did you hear cries for reparations, reparations, reparations from Muslim, Muslims, Muslim nations, and so on. Uh, that's something the leftists have created, have invented these days, right? But the Zionists have too. They want to capitalize 
on those people who suffered because of the, the Holocaust. And there were generally Jews who suffered from that, no doubt about it. Um, and But, you know, some of their descendants now say, well, we want pay us, you know, pay reparations to us. We want reparations for this. Um, but, you know, the question is, where where would that end? Um, I'm sure that I have I have ancestors I, I could go back to who were treated badly, falsely imprisoned, perhaps even enslaved. You know, that I would have relatives who uh, uh, were indentured servants and and all the all the rest, and uh, that I can go back and say I want reparations for that. Uh, with every bit as much right as anybody else would. Um, but it hadn't, it would never cross my mind, you know, because this is not my personal suffering. It seems to be almost, uh, as some Jewish people have said, disrespectful to the sufferings of their ancestors to say, because they suffered, I want you to pay me. I want reparations now. I demand that because it seems to be so selfish and somewhat even trying to put a value on what they suffered. And in terms of money. Um, so in, in any case, uh, Tom, this idea of uh, Zionism, um, that it somehow entitles those who are uh, uh, Jewish, you know, by heritage, either because their bloodline does go back to that of Abraham, because they are true children of Abraham, or those who are the Khazars or or other lines of Jewish converts over the centuries uh, have a certain entitlement to, to take lands and so on. Uh, the question is, do they take these lands because uh, their ancestors held them at one time, or do they take lands because God guaranteed them those lands and they have a divine right to them, right? Well, some would say, well, you know, David... Solomon, and so on, the, the Jews moving into the Promised Land hundreds of years before David and Solomon took possession of those lands, and they actually took those lands away from indigenous peoples. Um, because Moses was, was directed by, by God to do that, okay? But those who don't believe in this divine right would say, well, look, they, they took those lands away from those indigenous peoples and actually wiped them out in many cases, would just destroy entire villages when the Hebrews invaded. So, you know, according to some of the modern thinking, right, this was an, it would be an atrocity. Those who believe that uh, this is by divine right, that God gave that land to them, and they have a right to it to this day, and uh, those who invaded and took it from them and drove them into the diaspora, had no right to do that, and so those who've settled on the land, even if they've been there for many generations, have no right to it, and it can be expropriated from them by the Hebrews, who actually were given that land by God in perpetuity. Okay, this is the divine right idea, right? But behind all of that um, is the idea that the Jews have a separate uh and distinct and unique relationship with God, such that um, they do not need to be saved by Jesus Christ. They do not need to regard him as their Redeemer, their Savior, their Messiah. They have a separate dispensation 
and almost a separate uh, means of salvation apart from him. We think back to the Vatican II document, Nostra Aetate, and the, the Vatican II and the, the subsequent idea that it's wrong to even try to convert Jews to believe in Jesus Christ, to recognize him as their savior and the only savior of all mankind, because they have a special arrangement with God. It does not include Jesus Christ, and it's insulting to them to tell them that it does, that they should convert and recognize Jesus Christ, and they should become Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Um, of course, this is insulting to, to Christians, we believe, to say that. But this is uh, this Zionism, this spiritual Zionism, is now rife within the modernism and the modernist New Order Church of Francis. And uh, it is totally contrary to the Catholic faith, the very fundamental doctrines of the Catholic faith. But the Son of God becoming man, and as the Redeemer of mankind, and the only Redeemer of all mankind, which includes, as St. Paul says, Jew and Greek, right? Or Jew and Gentile. There's only one Savior. There's only one Redeemer. And those who are not saved by him and through him will not be saved. So there is, there's a Zionism on, on multiple levels here, right? And, um, you know, one could look at the, the claims that, well, the, the Jews held that property in Palestine for hundreds of years, so they have a right to return to it. Anybody else who's invaded and settled there in the meantime should be driven out. <clears throat> um, but as I say, I mean, from a natural point of view, one might have to look and say, well, the Jews themselves drove people out, indigenous peoples, who in turn before them had driven other indigenous peoples out. And so it goes on and on and on. You know, you can't go back really to the indigenous the originally indigenous people anywhere, right? So, um, but uh, as far as the spiritual claim that God gave them this land and no one else had right to it, they have a perpetual right to it. Well, they can point to the scriptures, at least interpreted by, again, Zionists. Uh, but I don't know that anybody really these days in the secular world today would take that seriously, that because many of these people do not believe in God anyway, and many of the Zionists don't believe in God. So many of the Zionists themselves not believing in God to uphold some kind of perpetual claim to territory on earth because God gave it to them, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, any thinking, thinking person would say, this does not compute. And besides, with the secularization of the world, uh, we're not impressed by that argument. But for, for Christians, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, truly believe that he is the only savior of mankind, uh, the Zionism that says, well, uh, the, the Jews have a separate, separate dispensation for salvation from God, uh, have a special status among all mankind to this day because of that, um, because of the offspring of Abraham. I would just say, read the gospel, see what our Lord says about that. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Surely Jesus Christ did, did not accept that, that type of Zionism. Mm -hmm. He didn't believe, he didn't see that. Yeah. <laughs> Quite the contrary. And he Father, condemned it. Father, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't the answer to this uh, just be Catholicism, plain and simple? You know, talking about this uh, Zionism and, you know, the other things that we mentioned with the 
ethnic Gnosticism and, and even the, um, you know, what we see going on today with all the racism and supposed racism and the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and all of this, wouldn't all of that be solved just by Catholicism, you know? What does that mean? But, you know, universal, it's, you know, we, we're not uh, all these individual races or, or, or sects or anything. Well, it or, would be by true Catholicism, yes. But remember what most people think of Catholicism right now is what we know as modernism and the complexness of all heresies. That's what 99.999% of mankind think is Catholicism right now. They've been so uh, brainwashed and deceived by the modernists in the Vatican. So, um, but you're right, Tom. Of course, true Catholicism is the only answer, the only antidote for this for this poison. It's a poison of division yeah. and uh, ethnic uh, superiority and uh, uh, you know racial dominance and so on. Only Catholicism can cure that. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, perhaps you're unprepared for this, but I, I wanted to ask you, I believe tomorrow is the, the feast day of St. Mary Magdalene. Could you uh, give us any kind of uh, um, words of, of wisdom that uh, we could learn from, from St. Mary Magdalene and, and her example? Repent. Repent. Okay. <laughs> Here you have the, you might say, the quintessential sinner, right? <clears throat> A woman who was so corrupted that as sacred scripture tells us, our Lord had to cast seven devils out of her. Right. That's pretty serious. <laughs> Think that she was possessed. You know. And um, this particular feast day of St. Mary Magdalene is very dear to my heart because uh, it is the anniversary of my first solemn mass after ordination to priesthood. It was ordained on June 29th. And... Uh, when I came back to the States, arrangements were made for the first solemn mass and uh, took place on this feast day uh, of uh, June 22nd, July 22nd, St. Mary Magdalene. Of course, a week later, the octave day is the feast of St. Martha, her sister, right? Uh, so that these two feast days from July 22nd to July 20, uh, 29th, I guess, really are like an octave for this little family of Bethany. They included Lazarus, too, right? Um, so it's, uh, it's a special time of year with special these beautiful, beautiful feast days of those who harbored our Lord when his life was in danger and was being threatened by the powers that were in Jerusalem at the time. But uh, Mary Magdalene uh, was at one of these poor, wandering souls who had just uh, drifted into a life not only of worldliness, but just had completely given herself over to sin. And um, it is said that she is the woman who was caught in adultery and dragged before our Lord and threatened with being stoned to death, right? And our Lord said to her, uh, has no one condemned thee, will it? I mean, you know the story where our Lord was drawing in the, in the sand and they said, you know, well, answer our question. Should we stone her or not? Moses says we should. What do you say? And our Lord said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And he went back to drawing in the dirt. And they turned one by one by one in order of age, walked away. So at the end of that, Mary Magdalene asked, uh, well, Jesus, our, our Lord, stood up, saw her there, still prostrate in the dust. But now all of her, all of her would-be executioners had all left. 
she alone remained. And he said, has no one condemned you, woman? She said, no. And the Lord said, well, then neither will I, but sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Those are grave words, the Lord said. And the next time we see her, she's washing our Lord's feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair in the home of the Pharisee, right? The Pharisees are ridiculing her for being a public sinner. But our Lord says that she has loved much. And uh, much has been forgiven her, and much, and she loves much now because of that. And uh, so here she goes from being this notorious sinner, possessed, um, I mean, being possessed by seven devils. That's like the, the number, of, well, eight is the only number of, of real completeness beyond that. You know, we think of the seven capital sins, you know. Uh, so uh, she was a pretty bad person. <laughs> Um, she was a bad girl but here she is at the end standing next to our blessed mother and St. John and our blessed mother of course conceived without sin John the apostle virginal in his innocence and Mary Magdalene standing with them you know? um, and that was quite a group considering the thieves on the cross too the good thief and the bad thief so, um, but Mary Magdalene had her place there under the cross, and it should remind us that, uh, first of all, with regard to our own sins, um, that uh, we should be very grateful to our Lord for forgiving us. That whenever we go to confession and receive absolution, we should feel sorrow for our sins. But even greater than the sorrow should be the gratitude to our Lord that he was willing to forgive and willing to pay the price of forgiveness for us. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. You know, We need to be very grateful to God for that. Yes. But also, uh, we should learn from this example of Mary Magdalene that with regard to others, who we might consider to be simply beyond the reach of redemption, we, we should remember that um, Mary Magdalene was not. And if Mary Magdalene was not beyond the reach of redemption, then there really is no one beyond that reach, except those who are dead and judged, okay? But, um, and so we should be emboldened in our, in our prayers to pray for others, our loved ones, our friends, our enemies too, to pray for them. Prayers for enemies are particularly powerful because they are done most purely to fulfill the will of God, not our own personal preferences, right? <clears throat> our own personal preferences might like to see our enemies humbled and, uh, and laid waste <clears throat> at our feet. But the will of God is not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live. And so we subject our own will to the will of God and we pray for our enemies. And that's a very powerful prayer. Uh, the, the prayer that our Lord prayed on the cross. We unite our prayer with his when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Very powerful. So um, if God could take a Mary Magdalene and uh, make her a great saint and give her the power to love him greatly because she was, she would have been such a terrible sinner, had been forgiven so much, God can reach into the most dissolute, despicable soul on earth and uh, by a grace, an efficacious grace, make a tremendous transformation. Our Blessed Mother has a lot to do with that. I mean, Our Lady is standing there shoulder to shoulder with Mary Magdalene of all people. 
And rather than feel an aversion towards her, she felt quite an adversion to her because her son was, this was her son's work. The conversion of the sinner and the sanctification of the soul was such a triumph for her son dying on the cross that she found this probably very, very comforting and consoling. She was comforted and consoled by the presence of John the Apostle, we know that. But we have to see that Our Lady must have taken comfort and consolation from the presence of a Mary Magdalene there, too, who needed so there's more joy in heaven over one sinner repenting. And here you had one of the worst of the of the bad, Mary Magdalene. It must have been a comfort to our Blessed Lady to have her there, um, to support Our Lady at, at that time. So I... Our Lady has a lot to do with this. And as I say, our Blessed Mother's voice is very gentle, but very penetrating. And even when we um, bolt the door against our Lord and his influence, we, you know, uh, board up the windows and and turn out the lights and, and plug our ears. We don't want that influence of our Lord. Somehow our Blessed Mother's voice penetrates all that and gets in. It's uh, just a prerogative that God has given to her. So uh, I can't help but think that the presence of Mary Magdalene uh, at the foot of the cross was a, certainly also in great measure and in some marvelous way attributable to our Blessed Lady and her prayer. So. Well, I, I think that's very, very beautiful thought. And uh, thank you for that. I appreciate oh, sorry, that. So, thank you. Thank you for your time tonight. Well, you're welcome. Thank yep, you. Yep, yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.